Hello everyone, this is uh, Mehul Desai. Uh, I am the co-founder and chairman of Tantra. Uh, welcome to everyone from around the world to uh, the Tantra podcast series. Uh, today the topic is patents, the first of the three P's of intellectual property. Uh, I have with me today a very dear friend and probably one of the uh, the most deepest thinkers when it comes to intellectual property in general, patents in particular, Charles Sella. Charles Sella, hello, and uh, welcome to the Tantra podcast. Hi, Mahul. I really appreciate the kind words and hope I can live halfway up to them as, uh, as usual for you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm positive you will. Uh, so, <laughs> Charles, uh, we, uh, we've recently started uh, the Tantra podcast series, and um, uh, not making any assumptions. Uh, what we like to do is at the top of, of each uh, each segment, we do kind of brief introduction. So I'll start uh, and then I'll, I'll request you to do the same. Um, so uh, uh, folks, uh, again, this is Mehul Desai. Uh, I have uh, spent the last 30 plus years in the global ICT and fintech world. Um, had an opportunity to start working on mobile commerce, mobile payments, mobile wallets, uh, very early on, back in the early 90s, uh, filed some early patents, uh, built a company out of Chicago uh, into a global technology provider, and uh, sold that company to MasterCard in 2014. Uh, since then, I uh, have built a few more companies. Um, I've had a few exits. Um, I have also shut down a couple companies which did not seem to be uh, uh, working the way we wanted them to. Uh, I've also had an opportunity to help take one uh, fintech company public on the London Stock Exchange. Uh, largely uh, with the help and guidance from Charles, I have also filed a lot of patents over the years. I have about 110 patents issued in the U.S., written a couple books, uh, served on a task force at the federal uh, and state level, um, and have dabbled in a few different areas from knowledge economy, knowledge cities, to um, food security, food safety, to new education models. Uh, and in all in all, uh, and in many ways, uh, Tantra uh, is a culmination of my last 30 years of both my personal as well as professional journey around the world. Uh, so at Tantra, uh, we started to look at innovation you know, uh, through a slightly different lens, uh, having seen how innovation was being done around the world and clearly continues to be done. Uh, we felt that we could be uh, in a position to take a little different perspective and view on innovation at large, and uh, essentially set up Tantra with the idea uh, to bring five different capabilities um, to the global innovation ecosystem. Uh, the first is uh, providing engineering services. Uh, this is where we work with companies from small to large corporations around the world um, and help them either build out intellectual property-led products uh, or if they have a mature system, work with them on their software services needs. Uh, two, we uh, have set up a venture fund where we have the ability to invest in companies uh, that we think are interesting, uh, and where, more importantly, we as uh, as Tantra can add value. 
Uh, three, we have set up an incubator where once again, if we see interesting ideas, we help incubate those ideas, turn them into products, eventually into ventures. Uh, four, we have a made-to-purpose uh, innovation, uh, continuing education or ed tech and enterprise platform. Uh, again, we have been building this platform for our own use across the Tantra ecosystem um, and progressively will be offering that up as a software as a service to the industry at large. And then uh, finally, as, as part of focusing on building human capacity, uh, we have our own internal academy uh, that we call Gurukul, uh, which is where we really focus on building people um, at Tantra. Uh, we uh, do not really be, believe in recruiting people. We believe that along with capabilities, what is very important uh, is to align the culture. Um, and over the years, given that we've built a lot of teams in different parts of the world, we've brought all of those learnings together under Gurukul as part of Tantra's academy. And so with these five uh, different components of Tantra, we think that we can we can approach innovation and help build out innovation in a lot more sustainable way. And uh, one of the core focus areas for us uh, within Tantra is intellectual property at large. And so one of the ways I describe intellectual property uh, to folks that I that I work with, collaborate with, um, is through the three Ps, uh, saying that intellectual property is manifested clearly in the form of a product. Um, at Tantra, once again, through our engineering services, uh, we work with companies and help take their ideas and manifest them in the form of a product. Uh, two, uh, it's, it's always captured through the people involved. Uh, the most important facet of intellectual property, I believe, in any corporation is always its people. And so at uh, Tantra, one of the things we do is we help companies build out what we call pods, uh, where we will start with a captive team, but more importantly, build and mature that team over time for our customers, for our partners, with the idea that they can take over their entire team and once again ensure that that integral part of their intellectual property never leaves their organization. And then the third uh, P is clearly patents. Um, and uh, patents is something which is very close to mine and Charles Hart. And uh, so as part of this podcast series uh, where we want to talk about all three P's of intellectual property, I thought it would be extremely apt for us to start with patents. Um, once again, Charles, thank you very much for giving us the time uh, and uh, sharing your knowledge uh, with the Tantra ecosystem. Uh, personally, I have benefited immensely from my association with Charles, which uh, I Geez, if I go back, I think at least uh, 20 plus years now. Um, you know, personally, I started filing patents very early on in the early 90s. But until I met Charles, uh, which, if I recall correctly, was towards uh, the late 90s, early 2000, at least 20 years ago. Uh, up to that point, I used to think of patents in a very one dimensional way. Uh, and it was only after I met with Charles that I understood the significance of thinking of patents in a multi-dimensional, multi-vector, uh, uh, with a multi-vector approach. And that has just uh, completely opened uh, at least my uh, perspective, my views on intellectual property in general, patents, patent portfolio in particular. Um, and so I could not uh, have a 
better mind and heart uh, to join us uh, and once again uh, help all of us as part of the Tantra ecosystem. Uh, A, understand patterns and B, understand the value of intellectual property. So Charles, thank you once again for your time and more importantly, your friendship over the years. And um, if you would be so kind enough to, to kind of give a little bit of your background and perspective, and then we'll kind of jump into the uh, discussion. Yeah, so, sounds great, Mahul. And uh, um, feelings mutual. I mean, I appreciate the kind words, but, um, you know, you've, you've been, you know, one of the, the great friends and uh, talented leaders and inventors in, in our ecosystem. One of the best things about the patent business is that you get to work with people who have a vision about you know how how a whole element of a society or a market category might change and um, and carry that vision through right and and, I, and we've been able to see you know you you were uh, along with your co-founder uh, Sam back in the day you know envisioning radical changes in how the payments ecosystem you know, was going to happen you literally wrote you guys literally wrote, wrote the book on the topic. Um, and so much of that, you know, played out and, uh, and, and so it, it makes it easy for the patent person to, um, when the vision has that level of clarity early on, which it often doesn't, um, the, you know, the rest of it, uh, you know, is, uh, um, is, is, is made fun and easy. And, and so, um, we you know, enjoyed our interactions immensely. So appreciate uh, your, um, inviting me. Um, I'll, I'll just do a quick background. You know, I, I'm one of the the founders and managing directors of uh, Strong Force. Uh, Strong Force is a group of companies that um, uh, all you know surround uh, the the process of innovation. They're all innovation companies. They all ultimately you know, drive innovation quite systematically using a methodology that I pioneered you know, over the last couple of decades, um, and uh, and and to pursue uh, large category leading IP portfolios. Um, Original background was as a as a strategist and inventor. Uh, my academic background is a mix of physics and public policy and economics, particularly game theory. And I it was looking in the early days of my career to kind of way to put that together. And, and it's turned out that you know that patent strategy is um, has has been that way. It's worked really. Yeah, it looks really good in in retrospect. It wasn't so obvious how we we're going to put those pieces together at the outset. Um, uh, Kind of the central theme of the last couple of decades um, has has been to act as a designer, sort of effectively the architect of um, category level patent portfolios, um, and those have um, you know, led to large exits, monetization programs, you know, in a number of fields like network lighting, um, enterprise software, mobile wallets, um, AR VR, wireless power, wearables. Um, and along the way, um, and I think we'll probably get into some more detail about this later in our discussions, but you know, I, um, you know, kind of initiated a, a methodology that started out as a little sketch on a legal pad and is now kind of full-blown, fairly comprehensive strategic methodology with process and software and people behind it. Um, and, uh, and we translate that you know, into a range of things, opportunities for um, uh, venture investing, you know, into areas, opportunities for um, uh, providing services to companies to align their patent strategy with their core business strategy um, and uh, and a range of other you know, things. So it's turned out that IP, you know, has, has multiple modes of value creation. We'll probably talk more uh, about that. Um, and, uh, 
And along the way, um, you know, I've started, uh, I think, about a dozen different companies. Um, I've been a kind of serial entrepreneur in addition to a patent strategist. And, you know, in that world have been you know, extremely fortunate to have relationships with inventors, entrepreneurs, investors, you know, experts really across the technology markets. Um, and, and that helps us, you know, today, you know, find creative talent, you know, drive innovation and, and, uh, and very often, you know, connect the dots across domains that are converging to lead to a new category. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll pause at that and uh, and get get on to a little bit of the uh, the back and forth. But again, appreciate the introduction. Thank you once again, Charles. Thanks for everything. So maybe just picking up from there um, and kind of gradually uh, making our way towards the deep end of patents. <laughs> um, kind of if you know, I I you know, having known you for as long as I do now, and having worked with you extensively on so many different projects. I know how passionate you are about um, innovation, intellectual property, patents, kind of starting from the the big picture and bringing it down to the tactical day-to-day. And as you look at kind of your personal journey, um, I mean, where, where does that come from? Was there like this one incident which put you on that path? I mean, why is it, how is it that you've become so passionate about about intellectual property and again charles the reason why i i I ask you this is uh, oftentimes when i meet with folks and i'm trying to explain to them trying to convey to them uh the importance of focusing on intellectual property um you know i suspect some of that hopefully not a lot of it but some of it just kind of falls flat on their end as as an academic topic um, and that's why I'm trying to kind of, if I may, humanize this passion that I know you and I both share for intellectual property. So in your personal journey, was there an instance or an incident or was there an aha moment where you said, you know what, this is what I'm going to focus on and this is going to be my charge? It's a great it's a great question. Um, you know, I think often people associate patents with literally the light bulb turning on, right? There's this kind of, you know, kind of the, the skies open, the invention happens. And, um, and I'd say for me, um, you know, I, I the, that recognition probably, you know, there's been a few, a few moments of recognition and, uh, but it, it probably came from a, a prepared mind, right? Like I, I was from a very early age, interested in things that were different um, and, and had a perception that you know most things could be done a little bit of a different way. And so I did things like create a new way to tie my shoes that other people um, uh, you know, didn't do it that way. I don't know why. I just did it when I was a young kid. And when I worked on my grandparents' dairy farm in Kentucky, where I grew up, um, I uh, was sort of regularly re-engineering the workflow, you know, within the within the dairy in ways that uh, puzzled my grandfather, but um, kind of reflected that you know, kind of just instinct to uh, you know to try things a different way. Um, but uh, you know, along the way, um, uh, you know, as I as I came from a family of, of, of farmers on one side and academics, you know, as well. My my mother and father both taught at Murray State University in, in a small town in Kentucky, and so I grew up in an academic family as well. Um, and uh, and so was you know very focused on um, getting a high quality education. Studied physics. Studied economics, went to law school. Um, but, uh, it was early in my career as a licensing person, you know, that I, 
um, had kind of the first big you know, wave of insight, you know, which was in, in doing licensing deal work, um, I discovered that there were a set of really interesting questions that no one would answer. Um, questions about what patents should I file? Which ones are going to be valuable as opposed to not valuable? How valuable are those patents? Um, and you know, in the early 90s, the you know, patent attorneys were literally trained not to answer business questions. They would kick those back to the clients. The clients maybe had an MBA. A lot of them were entrepreneurs with no business training, but the ones who had business training had gone to business schools that did not have any teaching about intellectual property. Even today, most places might have a short survey course that covers patents, trademarks, copyrights, and other things. Um, and, and in between, there's this huge gulf you know, with all these complex, interesting questions. And it, it struck me as an enormous chance for value creation um, uh, that would be involved in actually having patent strategy exist. You know, it, it existed. I found out later that there were highly strategic people in the patent business. They were just all inside certain companies that were doing it really, really well and aligning their, you know, their patent programs. But in the service provider said it was virtually, uh, it was crickets chirping. There's almost nobody doing it. Um, and so I, you know, started sketching out, you know, so that was a kind of a first moment of realization. Um, and, and for me, that moment was a vision, right. Of a, of a, category of patent strategy, I mean, real content-based patent strategy that at the time um, barely existed and it existed in a very hidden way inside companies like Texas Instruments. Um, and, uh, and so that, you know, that certainly was a, a driver of just kind of my own, from my own curiosity. And then I was extremely lucky, you know, to have a group, um, a co small company called Color Kinetics. I don't think they had even named the company when I met them. It was two, two people um, uh, one of them has, has passed away very sadly. It was an absolutely brilliant inventor and entrepreneur, George Mueller. And George uh, visited. Um, he had been told by several people that his invention was not patentable because it was a color-changing lighting system uh, that, that had an electrical engineering diagram very similar to a jumbotron board. And uh, he believed that the color-changing LED, um, particularly the blue LED, you know, you know, controlled by a networking technology was going to potentially revolutionize the whole lighting industry. Um, and, uh, and so this, there was this huge disconnect, you know, between what the patent people were telling him and what his business instincts told him. Um, and, and I, that struck me, uh, strikes me looking back now as you know, the, the perfect use case, you know, for, um, for really looking at patent strategy in a, in a, in a way that was different from a traditional kind of legal analysis. And so we sketched out, I had a little, four by four matrix on a legal pad that I was using to think about inventions and how different technologies could apply in different fields to organize a licensing program. And when we started pulling together the this little matrix, we recognized that we had more than 40 different markets and applications. And I mean, a, a, thousands of applications organized within those 40 markets. Um, and so the, you know, the columns of my matrix started to grow out, you know, 40 or 50 columns long. And then we looked at the technologies and recognized that although a jumbotron board had put together the same electrical engineering, when you started to bring in different networking technologies, different technologies for handling thermal, different form factors, there was actually an incredibly rich body of technologies intersecting multiple domains um, in, in kind of the order of several dozen networking technologies intersecting with several dozen LED technologies. So the matrix grew from 
my four by four legal pad to more than 5,000 cells. And, and, uh, we wrote about almost all of that. Um, and, and, you know, zoom forwards, you know, several years afterward, that portfolio, you know, ended up being a foundational portfolio in the network lighting category, probably the, the earliest foundational portfolio there. It was part of a, an almost $800 million transaction, you know, for that founding team and, and a methodology was really born you know, out of that. But the, the moment that I recognized that the lighting industry was in fact going to be revolutionized right by this client was absolutely a moment that, um, you know, created incredible passion on my part, um, you know, getting back to your original question for, you know, for what intellectual property can do for a company, right? The, the ability to completely transform a company. Um, what's happened since then, you know, is we've, we've hit several other categories with, um, with results that, you know, kind of in, are in the nine figures. Um, but I would say, you know, the, the, you know, what I've found is that, you know, what really fuels the passion now kind of still doing it, you know, two decades later um, has been the thing you reference, which is the people, you know, watching uh, IP transform an organization, you know, can happen fairly rapidly and produce great financial results. But what I've seen is it, it's also really transformed the people involved. We, we've watched, you know, people who in, um, in a lot of society, you would be considered kind of crazy inventors, right? The guy at the party who's always got the next idea, um, uh, who is looked at, in traditional strategic, you know, circles where it's all about product market fit as a distraction or a diversion from, you know, where, where, what you need to do next to be focused, to get to that next milestone. Um, and we've, we've watched some of these people flourish and grow and, and rise up to some of the highest positions in the technology markets and, and to be seen as the visionary geniuses that they are. Um, and that's extremely gratifying, you know, to, to watch, you know, watch people, um, you know, sort of find the sweet spot, you know, for, for their core creative talents um, to align it in a way that um, is reinforcing, you know, to what a company is doing, you know, rather than kind of fighting for resources um, is, uh, is about as good as it gets, you know, and, and so, uh, and, and I've been extremely fortunate to have, um, you know, my two fellow managing directors, Adam Klotz and Richard Spitz, you know, who are, themselves really passionate about organization building. I mean, Richard you know, ran Corn Ferry's global technology markets practice for about a decade. And so, you know, he's been fully invested in the development of kind of top level people for, you know, most of his career. And uh, you know, what we've recognized is that, you know, the IP business um, is absolutely, as you as you recognize and pointed out earlier, right, it is absolutely about people and talent and, uh, and, and being passionate about that you know, is really what's sustained me. Like I like each category. I have a lot of fun in every one of the categories, but it's, it's growing, it's watching the people grow and growing with them. That is just a, a sustained, you know, joy, truly joyful activity. Thanks Charles. You've touched upon so many, uh, <clears throat> so many topics and we are actually going to unpack uh, at least a few of them in, in today's conversation. But one of the notes I made is uh, uh, as a complete aside, my, 10-year-old plays soccer and I do need to talk to you about how you used to <laughs> tie your shoelace because that seems to be one area that he and everyone on his team continues to struggle with. Uh, but we'll, we'll take that one offline. Let's not bore everyone with that. Um, okay, so look, I, I, you know, both you and I have now used the terms, um, <laughs> well, patents, uh, 
patent portfolios, uh, uh, category claims, claim clouds is something that, thanks to you, I talk about a lot with folks uh, who indulge me on intellectual property. Um, for the sake of the audience, can you kind of just do a layman um, uh, definition of these terms just to kind of help build some of the, the deeper and more strategic concepts uh, that we'll then, then get to? Yeah, de- definitely so. So, uh, you know, so, so a patent is a, a legal right issued by the government. Um, it's a right to exclude others from making, using, selling, or importing a novel, non-obvious invention, you know, for a period of time. You know, in the U.S., it's it's 20 years from the date of filing for uh, for most patents. There's certain categories where it's shorter. Um, so it is a legal monopoly. Um, doesn't give you the right to do anything. It only gives you the right to um, control the ability of other people to do things. And so um, and so it's uh, sometimes referred to as a negative right. Um, but um, but it is uh, it is you know, unique form of, uh, of, of property. Um, and it's, you know, they, it goes back to our constitution. Thomas Jefferson wrote the patent and copyright clause of the U S constitution. I looked it up article one, section eight, clause eight, um, uh, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors, the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. And, you know, the intent you know, is to promote science. It's to promote innovation, um, and at their core, um, by rewarding people you know, for developing things that are new, taking a risk, um, you know, investing in in development of, and innovation. You know, there's a trade-off of society receives that innovation for the long term in exchange for a short-term monopoly on the part of the patent owner. Um, and, uh, and patents are often complementary to other kinds of IP. Sometimes confused with them, like trademarks, which support brands and copyrights, which protect things from direct copying. Um, uh, but patents, you know, typically are more more associated with kind of classic inventions. Um, these days, that can be hardware, software, biotech. A wide a wide range of things can be covered by patents. You know, kind of anything novel and non obvious. You know, that's useful um, and sufficiently technical can be uh, can be patented. Um, there's a process with the government to get a patent. It's it's not you, you don't just get a patent for, for for inventing. You have to actually go back and forth with the government through a process that's um, kind of oddly called patent prosecution. People use that term thinking it means prosecuting somebody for inv- in, infringing a patent, but it's actually prosecution is the term for the back and forth that you do with patent offices around the world. Um, patents are typically uh, by country by country or regional. Um, so there's a regional patent system in Europe, but most places it's country by country. So to build patent coverage, you have to go around the world kind of one by one to different countries. And most people can only afford to do that in certain places. Um, over time, uh, you know, patents can be grown into portfolios. And so people kind of classically often think about, I have a product, I'm going to get a patent on it. Uh, you know, but in fact, um, you know, there's in, in any modern product, you know, there are typically multiple patents and, and sometimes, you know, hundreds or even thousands of patents, you know, the, the, you know, the, the kind of classic, you know, smartphone these days, you probably crosses a hundred thousand patents, you know, that are, that are covering some aspect of it, you know, from the, the chip to the display, to the form factor, to the networking technologies, to the applications that are on it. Um, and so as you're building out, you know, a, a patent portfolio, you're typically looking at, 
um, a range of targets? Am I trying to cover a product with multiple features or am I trying to build something bigger? Um, you referenced, you know, kind of a claim cloud. And, and, and one of the things that, that people try to do, you know, once they figured out what's the territory that I want to kind of keep to myself to have some control over it um, in a claim cloud, you know, can be is a, is a metaphor, you know, for comprehensively covering many different variations and combinations around a product um, uh, or even a whole category. And you, you hear terms, uh, metaphors like picket fences and moats and thickets and, and bridges, you know, blocking the bridges to an island. They're all really re- referencing, you know, this characteristic that as you as you go from a single patent on a single feature out to a patent portfolio, um, there is a, a potential to impact a much broader set of activities, you know, sometimes including controlling the whole category. Great. Thanks, Charles. That, 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 that was fantastic. And, um, and so now with that, uh, kind of moving a little bit into strong force, and, and you talked about strong force as, as part of your background and the introduction. Um, and once again, having had the pleasure and privilege of, of uh, being a part of Strong Force and uh, so many different activities that you have under it, uh, can, you, uh, can you talk a little bit about kind of Strong Force design, uh, Strong Force catalyst, and then you have a series of, of uh, Strong Force portfolios? And uh, uh, once again, kind of the interplay between these constructs and, you know, if I've missed out something, but these are kind of the three big ones that I frame for myself as I, as I first heard you talk about this, geez, I, I think a long time ago. And then as you've been building Strong Force uh, as a group over time. Uh, but I think therein lies, again, similar to kind of what we're trying to do with Tantra and our kind of framing of uh, five blocks to help drive innovation. The way I've uh, seen you build strong force and, and kind of the strong force ecosystem of companies, activities, uh, I, see, I see the same thing, kind of a, a different way of building and driving innovation. So if you can, uh, if you, uh, if you can just share with us a little bit of, about how the different strong force uh, constructs have come together or have been built over time and then how they come together today as we speak. Yeah, great. And, and, and I would say, you know, we see each of the kind of each of the companies that sort of sit, you know, within the strong force group of companies as uh, you know, reflecting a, you know, a distinct mode of value creation. Um, and, and, you know, in general, um, they all share this backbone of a, of a core matrix based combinatorial methodology, um, but they they have very distinct ways of translating the control that results from a category-leading you know, patent portfolio into value. Um, so Strongforce Design is a, is a services business. It's in the business of um, uh, designing, kind of architecting um, patent portfolios with a view toward controlling a category on behalf of a client. Um, uh, often that's in a mode, you know, where we're participating in the value. Um, uh, and often, you know, we're working for, you know, companies that are, you know, tackling the creation, you know, whether it's a large company or a venture backed company, or even a kind of a core, you know, early stage company, you know, the creation of a new category or the redefinition of an existing category. Um, and so we, you know, are in, in the methodology, which design, you know, repeatedly does across multiple 
uh, inventive categories. You know, we're, we're looking for kind of hallmark characteristics of a, of a powerful category leading IP portfolio. And, you know, we see that as kind of a mix of, well, we, you know, kind of three C's, you know, creativity, control, and clarity. You know, you need to have enough creative juice, you know, going on, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to differentiate, right. To have that novelty and non-obviousness that, that I mentioned that's required to even have patents, um, you know, all over a category. Um, and, and we just, we, we, test that through a process we call innovation discovery work where we, um, break down, um, an inventive area into, uh, high level themes and focus areas and vectors and building blocks, a whole internal lingo right, that we've built out to kind of manage innovation discovery and understand you know, what the inputs are that are you know, potentially enough to build a big patent portfolio. Um, in terms of looking for control of a, of a we, we look you know, at the patent landscape and you know, find vastly different um, patent landscapes for similar categories and technologies. You know, some the, the same size business opportunity in one field can have tens of thousands of patents layered onto it, so that it's quite hard to create additional control. Even if you build a really great patent portfolio, you, it's kind of a, a hundred, you know, over over a hundred thousand, right? As a denominator, you know, it means that you, you're just getting a little incremental control. You can build the portfolio, you've got the creativity, you don't have the control over, over the space. A very similar space commercially, same size market, um, you know, can have a hundred patents in it, right? And so, you know, we're always looking for categories and subcategories where people have missed um, a little bit of the script; they're a little too late to the game, um, and that's often where there's silos of innovation, you know, where there's uh, innovation happening in area A and innovation happening in area B. Um, things like, you know, networking technologies and LEDs, you know, where the, even within a company like Philips, which ultimately bought that portfolio, there were inventors working um, in very advanced ways on both of those technology sets, and they had no group that was working on both of them together. And so when those silos start to interconnect, there's often an interface of massive innovation that's just missed. Um, and, uh, and so we we're always looking in our landscape work for those kinds of opportunities. And today we automate that, you know, with uh, um, a, a, a fairly complex set of, uh, of uh, big data and software processes to help us discover those landscapes. And then the last piece is clarity. And this is the one where, you know, so far we have not come up with a magic bullet for solving the problem of clarity. Um, how do you figure out what's going to be valuable and when? Uh, timing is, is you, know, you can often articulate a really beautiful, powerful vision, you know, for what a category is going to look like when it gets there. And it's often right. Um, but if that, if you have that vision 20 years before it actually happens, you know, you end up with uh, a very poor return on your investment, a poor IRR, right? It just takes too long to get there. Um, you know, whereas if you can find something that's kind of in the sweet spot of three or four years out, you're often ahead of product companies because they aren't quite there in deciding product market fit or investing in patents. Um, and you can build something that really controls a category. And Strongforce Design is just all about doing the analytics and discovery to to analyze those categories. And then once we've got it, you know, translating the creative inputs into what we call a blueprint, you know, for controlling the category. Then we apply the matrix and build out a portfolio typically of a hundred or a couple hundred patents along with the client. Um, so uh, Strongforce Innovation Portfolios um, does that for investors. So exact same process, um, except that we're defining along with um, experts and leaders that we interact with, 
defining you know very targeted categories where we've done the analytics, we've done the creative input, we've built the blueprint, started you know to recruit inventors like yourself, um, and and we we bring um, a cross disciplinary, cross silo inventive team, often five different entities, twenty different inventors into a project to define the vision right for a whole category and to go build a typically an even larger portfolio. Um, and we do that for investors. And so we each one of those is actually a, a company itself, you know, whose whose mission is to build a category leading IP portfolio that we can license and, and ultimately sell. Um, Catalyst is an activity of of Strong Force Design and um, in some ways kind of like its own entity, you know, that's where we see a category that might languish, but with a little nudge, you know, can move faster, you know, where we can change the IRR by getting the party started. And so Catalyst does things like, you know, translating the innovation discovery work into reference designs, some light software development, partnership agreements with very early companies, you know, where we can take the innovation that's envisioned by our inventive group um, and, and move it down the path toward proof of concept. Um, you know, we don't build whole product suites or commercialize those products, but we get the party going you know, through Catalyst. Um, and then you didn't ask about it, but you know, the last kind of mode is, is what we call capital strategies, you know, where the, the effort to build these blueprints can often give a, a vision for how something might emerge that's valuable for investors. And so we do everything from diligence, you know, to early, for early stage investors, you know, to, uh, you know, kind of helping people at the fund level kind of strategically allocate their resources across, you know, different members, you know, based on a, a vision of the category and, and some ability to control it. Um, and that's a more recent, you know, activity for us. It's, you know, we're, we're kind of dipping our toe in the water on that kind of work. But um, I think the richness of that, just like your description of Tantra, right, with all the different modes, right, that you're in, you know, uh, the, the richness of these different modes reflects, you know, the kind of core the core wisdom, you know, which is that um, a, a category leading, you know, large IP portfolio um, brings a degree of control that can be translated into value many different ways. You know, it's it's it, you don't have to figure out at the outset how am I going to use this patent portfolio. It's it's a form of control, a form of securing market share, competitive advantage, generating revenue, defending right that that. Um, is actually can be can be quite flexible and powerful uh, when when done the right way at the outset. Brilliant, Charles. Brilliant. Thank you so much for for spelling all of that out. Um, and uh, for the benefit of our audience, um, and I, I touched upon this earlier, but uh, Strong Force is one of our founding partners at Tantra. Uh, just recently, as part of Tantra Engineering, uh, we announced a IP practice. Uh, which uh, works very closely with uh, Charles, Adam, Richard, the entire team uh, at Strong Force across all of these different entities. And once again, as we engage uh, at Tantra, whether it's through engineering, through ventures, uh, through the incubator, uh, with so many brilliant inventors, entrepreneurs around the world, uh, small companies, large companies, uh, two guys in a garage, you know, the expression, um, to you know, well-established companies. Uh, the the idea is to to bring to each and all of them um, our collective understanding of intellectual property and how it could potentially help them in uh, in whatever whatever their their objectives and and their vision is. Um, 
So, uh, Charles, one of the ways I, I kind of like to talk about what something is, is also bringing in what it's not. <laughs> and uh, I found that to be helpful. And I think uh, when it comes to patents, uh, often enough, and I start talking about patents, um, there's always someone in the audience who um, kind of rolls their eyes and it, it, you can almost sense it, and some of them are, are vocal enough, but a lot of them aren't, uh, that, you know, they kind of think of patents uh, as something saying, okay, this guy is talking about suing the world, okay? Uh, that, you know, uh, Mehul thinks patents are important because if you have a patent, you can go out and sue everyone. Or if you have a patent, then your sole objective is to stop others from actually putting some ideas out there and so on and so forth. And so... I, I thought uh, thought with you if we can talk about some of these kind of uh, conflicting, uh, contentious ideas, and some of them are complementary. Um, you know, I think it will be very helpful once again to the audience as they as they kind of take away hopefully the overall importance of IP and, and patents in particular. But for example, I, I hear a lot of confusion between. Um, a defensive strategy vis-a-vis an offensive strategy, saying that, okay, you, you, you file patents uh, to be defensive, you file and acquire or procure patents to be offensive. Um, you've touched upon something uh, a couple times already. I talk about this a lot, which is kind of your, your, your unique approach of building category leadership, claim clouds. And kind of how does that uh, go vis-a-vis patent trolls? Again, it's something which, you know, people are aware of, they talk about. And, you know, I know for a fact that what you do with category claims and, and category leadership is so very different from someone who's building a portfolio of patents with the idea of trolling companies that are trying to practice that, that intellectual property. Um, and then finally, kind of the one that I, that I personally try and highlight all the time, saying that anytime you you have an idea, you want to turn it into a business venture, there's an IP-led business planning process vis-a-vis a market-led business planning process. And actually, in some of my conversations, I go to great lengths to explain that these, frankly, both converge to be the same, uh, but it has tremendous benefit if you look at the market from an intellectual property uh, standpoint as well. And so if, if you can kind of touch upon some of these conflicting, contentious kind of views that a lot of folks have on patents and how best you could uh, you could kind of untangle that. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Um, so, so litigation, you know, is um, by its nature, right? High stakes, high profile, gets a lot of attention. Um, when companies are drawn into litigation, you know, they, uh, it, it is very painful. And, and so that ends up getting, I think, a massively outsized amount of the public relations, right, the press around patents. Um, large patent portfolios, you know, once they control a space, are pretty rarely litigated. Uh, you know, the large, you know, large companies almost never enforce their patents aggressively, um, in, in terms of going to patent litigation, um, and uh, and in the big portfolios we've built, you know, uh, there's been a, a tiny, tiny amount of litigation. Um, and and what we found is that 
Um, litigation is, is, you know, in general, in, in game theory, right? When you when 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 you look at litigation, you know, a litigation is only rational if the the two parties have a very different impression of what the outcome is going to be. Um, and so, when you've got um, one or two or three patents, and um, it's it's unclear how the claims are going to be interpreted, and there are different ways of doing that. There's a high amount of uncertainty, and so there's a lot of litigation around kind of relatively small patent portfolios. You know, as you start to build to a network of, of thousands of claims across hundreds of patents, you know, that are targeted around an area. Um, the uncertainty starts to go away. Both parties, you, you may disagree over what something's worth, but you, but the uncertainty goes away and tends tend to tend to be worked out not in litigation, you know, but in negotiated processes that reflect <coughs> the market's view of the value of the technology. Um, and so, uh, so, <coughs> but a lot of people do think of patents as you know, kind of they think of patents like litigators think of patents, and that is not how everyone thinks about patents. You know, I. Um, I think it's helpful, right, to look at a patent portfolio, um, a patent program, you know, kind of at the outset as a way of generating a degree of control over your fate, um, you know, and that control can can be translated through a wide variety of tactics. And so, if you start out saying I'm going to be defensive or offensive, people don't even mean the same thing. When they, some people say defensive, meaning they're using the patents to mitigate the chances that someone will um, sue them for patent infringement by having something to you know, to sue back with, right? So a mutual assured destruction diminishes the threat. And that's a legitimate use of patents. Other people, when they say defensive, they mean defending their products um, from infringement, you know, from, from, from competition, which is some people would say that's an offensive strategy, right? And, you know, some would say it's offensive only when you go to litigation, right? Some people would say it's offensive as soon as you assert it, right? So it's a lot of confusion in the marketplace, which I think is not even really that important to think about because the better way to think about it is we've got a valuable category. Can I get a degree of control over that category, which I can translate in all kinds of ways, including the ones I just talked about, um, you know, having, having assets that help diminish the chance that you get sued, generating licensing revenue, asserting uh, patents outside the scope of litigation to maintain product exclusivity, um, uh, partnering with parties around a set of patents, um, licensing them to standards bodies to encourage the development of standards. All those things happen every day, you know, in, in the patent business, they just don't get as much press as litigation. Um, you know, the patent troll is sort of a special species, you know, in, in the patent world. And, you know, they're typically are, are, are companies that have, that are in the litigation business. Um, and they typically, you know, rather than being innovation companies themselves, you know, they are companies that, um, buy patents at sort of wholesale prices and translate them, you know, into revenue by suing people or or threatening to sue people, and you know that that's kind of a classic patent troll. Um, you know, there are patent aggregators who are not trolls. You know, companies that build uh, like RPX that build large bodies uh, that, that buy large bodies of patents and then um, license them out at reasonable rates. You know, to uh, reduce the amount of litigation, kind of reducing the uncertainty, reducing litigation, and getting some share of the value created by inventors back to the inventors. And and we see ourselves as as doing that kind of thing. You know, helping really helping translate inventor value into a, a fair participating share of what's happening in the you know, out, out in the market. Um, there are, um, the, the attitudes are, are politicized, you know, large companies, um, are, um, 
like to free ride on the innovation of other companies and and use their own other mechanisms like brand and scale, you know, to secure market share. Um, And patents, you know, are a form of um, eroding that market share and securing it for smaller companies. And so I've always thought there's a a pretty powerful Robin Hood element um, uh, in in the patent world of of making sure the you know, the little guy can you know, who who is who is contributing innovation that's often snapped up you know um, by larger companies that aren't necessarily taking uh, making the investment in a, in innovation you know just getting a little bit back to that person right in a, in a way that encourages the continued kind of growth and turnover of of innovators in in our society. Um, um, and, uh, and, and that's not all large companies. You know, some of them are very, very good supporters of the patent system. Um, so I, I don't mean to paint everyone with the same brush, but there are, there are, um, you know, active lobbying political efforts, you know, to try to, you know, to try to, you know, kind of change the patent system in ways that tilt the, the table more toward large companies that, uh, you got to keep an eye out for. Um, and then just to, to your last point about kind of IP led processes, um, there's no question in my mind, you know, that, um, you know, companies that are highly aligned in their IP um, strategy and their business strategy have enormous competitive advantages. Um, you know, and, and that can include, uh, you know, lining up your, I mean, ultimately patents are a way of securing market share well in advance. And if you line up your medium term and long term roadmap and vision to areas you know, where you can um, secure market share for a long period of time in alignment with brand and alignment with competitive differentiation, you have a chance to be the absolute category leader. Um, and, and so that you know, that activity you know, is something that is rare, um, but when, when it's undertaken, produces incredible outcomes. Thanks, Charles. That was that was uh, immensely helpful. Um, so I, I I like to kind of end on a <laughs> a high note, if I may, <clears throat> and uh, and kind of at my age, uh, you know, a high note means you know, you know, what is it that we've done? Uh, where are we headed? What does the world look like um, over the next ten, twenty years? And so. Um, you know, both you and I are extremely close, obviously, to the the U.S. environment from intellectual property, filing patents, on and so forth. We file patents around the world. You know different uh, patent regimes uh, very well. And uh, so, as I as I ask you about kind of uh, where do you see the world, I'm kind of going to try and frame it maybe in three parts. And feel free to change those around if you think there's a better way. Uh, but once is kind of one is kind of just from literally this the the geopolitical setup of intellectual property patents and so on and historically there have been different parts of the world which have led the charge with intellectual property you know even if the the construct of patent and trademark offices is relatively recent you know different parts of the world different civilizations have been driving ip in their own way um, and so based on where we are today, kind of how do you see the geopolitical setup? I think based on a lot of reports I've read, the U.S. has been considered uh, to be leading the charge uh, in innovation in general, especially measured uh, by patents, patents file, quality of patents, you know, lots of different ways they apply the science and art to that. Uh, but clearly, uh, China is getting a lot of attention and China has 
seems to have at least a lot of numbers to now back up uh, that assertion. And then the EU, uh, as I've learned from you, frankly, uh, more than even others, is looking at kind of doing this uh, union-wide to kind of ensure that they do not you know, lose out on the fragmentation of uh, patents and intellectual property across the European Union. And so one is kind of uh, the, the, the geopolitical side of this. And as part of that, do you ever think uh, that there could be a global PTO regime, right? And I'll, I'll kind of, uh, you know, leave that as, as one way to draw out the future. Uh, the other, uh, to bring this closer to home for our corporate audience, um, you know, one of the, I mean, we all are very familiar with the C-suite, we, you know, uh, we need a CEO, okay, um, you know, as uh, technology started to get challenging in the last 20, 25 years, and more importantly, as every company understood the value of technology, was born the CIO and the CTO, as we as we all know it. Uh, obviously, this was always about making money, so the CFO is indispensable, um, you know, but do you see a chief intellectual property officer? Uh, do you see the importance of IP being so, uh, at least felt, uh, uh, you know, across the organization uh, to a point that companies may actually start entertaining the idea of having a chief IP officer? Uh, so that would be kind of from, from how you envision corporates evolving over time, especially in context of the importance around intellectual property. And then from kind of a dreamer perspective, you know, um, do you see the global South going from what I call a consumer to creator of IP? And uh, this is now looking at the current snapshot in time, the global South as it's defined uh, by economists more than probably anyone else, maybe anthropologists to a certain extent, uh, policymakers to a larger extent, um, you know, there was a time where clearly uh, the global south was driving uh, creation of intellectual property. But where we sit today, the global south largely is consuming IP, which has created so much friction in terms of the conflicts at, uh, you know, um, between the, the north and the south and the east and the west and the haves and the have-nots. And uh, you know, in the pharma world, especially more so post-COVID, uh, again, the same kind of uh, debates have come back up saying, look, you know, uh, you know, does intellectual property need fair value, fair assessment, especially when it comes to, to things which touch upon healthcare, and now increasingly it's going to be the environment. And, you know, and, uh, and so net-net, do you ever see the global south going from a consumer to a creator of IP, at least in, in the next 10 to 20 years? Um, big questions. So, uh, so, I'll, so uh, love these kinds of questions. Don't, don't purport to have an answer on these, uh, <laughs> on where these things are going or the crystal ball. Um, you know, I, the, the, I do see potential for a global or at least more unified uh, patent office. Um, you know, it, it's, I think one of the ideas that you're, Old friend uh, Sam Petroda you know, has has advanced, and and uh, there are signs of, of heading in that direction. You know, there there is um, I think good momentum. Um, I'm not closely involved, but from people who are closely involved, I'm told there's there's good momentum for a European patent um, with the kind of centralized, unified examination, um, better clarity, um, less less divergence across the kind of sub 
you know, countries um, of Europe and, and something that looks a lot more like the U.S. system, you know, in its uh, strength and, and, and uh, aligns with Europe's, you know, continued position as a strong innovator. Um, and, uh, and, and if that happens, that alignment between the U.S. and Europe would, would you know, very naturally, you know, progress toward um, a, a more expansive regime, you know, where you're well on your way toward a global patent. Um, China, you know, has a system that nominally looks very much like the others, um, uh, and they are a force in patent filing. Um, the major strategic investments you know, made by the government there um, uh, actually pay people to file patents. You know, we charge; it's very expensive to file a patent in the U.S. Even more expensive in Europe. You know, in China, people get paid uh, to to file patents, and so um, there's a massive wave of patent filings there. Um, that um, um, are evidence, right? That China, you know, is ultimately progressing, you know, toward you know toward a world where, at least from the point of view of the nominal legal regime, there would be no reason why you couldn't have a, a global or almost global patent office. Um, enforcement, right, might still look quite different, right? You might get a patent, but it might it might look very different in terms of the ability to enforce it in China, you know, versus Europe versus the United States. But those two things are decoupled today, and they could stay. They could stay decoupled. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, I think it's more a natural transition to go to your global south question from there and then circle back to the uh, the kind of IP, chief IP person. Um, you know, because I think that the dynamics that we've seen with China um, are similar to the ones that, that we could see with um, kind of the rest of the global south world. You know, we, we see um, there's no question that um, – you know, innovation, the market drives innovation and that innovation happens, you know, where the core production activities happen, right? And so we see innovation in China, innovation in Korea, innovation in Japan, uh, innovation in India. Absolutely. Uh, typically, I would describe that as market-driven innovation, which um, is taking things that are known to exist um, and making them in better, faster, cheaper ways, right? You know, kind of incrementally advancing, you know, how to produce this, how to produce that, um, as opposed to, you know, highly disruptive innovation or kind of radical regime shifting innovation, which is still strongly centered in the U.S. and Europe. And, and I don't know whether it'll that will change, right? But I think it could, um, because what we see, you know, is that talent talent is distributed everywhere, right? Like it's 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 not that the U.S. has some fundamental, you know, superiority, right? We've got talent everywhere. Um, and so I think it would, the, the that vision of, of the Global South being a creator, absolutely, that it'll be a creator of IP in the form of market-driven kind of incremental improvement patents. I have no doubt in my mind. And that's what you mostly see out of China today. Can we, can, can it make that next leap, right, you know, to contributing, whole new categories of innovation, um, you know, that, that will depend on government support um, as it does here, you know, and, and the U S um, you know, we, we often attribute to the market, you know, things that the government has heavily supported. And, and in the U S you know, our innovation advantage is a blend of the market economy with a whole lot of government support for academia, government support, um, for the defense industry, you know, which is, you know, for, for space travel, for um, solving renewable energy. I mean, all of those 
big projects where the government helps solve the collective act- action problem, gives people a motivation to take a risk and, and, and go out and put a whole new category out there. Um, you know, DOE supported the development of the LED um, and led to the network lighting industry and, and the market would have eventually gotten there, but it, it, it probably would have been decades slower. Um, and so the, you know, China is supporting innovation, um, the U.S. historically has supported innovation. We do so much, much less today than we once did, and it's at our major risk. You know, if we think the market's just going to solve this, and uh, you know, it, it'll hopefully come from somewhere. Um, and then, uh, so maybe I'll pause on that and, and, and see if you have thoughts on that, and then, and then I'm happy to happy to answer the chief IP officer question too. But I, I, I'm curious about your thoughts on this one as well. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. Uh, yes, I, um, I, when I kind of think about uh, the next 10 to 20 years, uh, I, I do believe the global South collectively will become uh, more and more assertive when it comes to intellectual property. Um, and I think you, you really, uh, I, I agree with, uh, with the way you touched upon it, that in many instances, um, it is because of the market forces. Um, and so, you know, I touched upon China, uh, but clearly, you know, now if you, if you talk to anyone, you know, the last six months have been extremely rocky and they continue to be. As a matter of fact, this afternoon, I'm expecting the markets again, uh, to be all over the place given the Fed announcement. Uh, but, uh, but uh, that aside, if you kind of look at where the so-called market unicorns are now coming up, uh, there is increasing focus on India, Singapore has always been and continues to be on Israel. And uh, so, uh, you know, I did not mean to leave any of these out from a, from a global uh, patent innovation perspective. But I, I think coming back to kind of where do I see this, I think for more so for market uh reasons um the importance of intellectual property in general patents in particular uh is going to become uh stronger and stronger throughout the global south and uh i think you bring up a very interesting point uh which is the government support slash intervention i mean different people kind of tend to view this differently um and you're absolutely right i think uh you know especially when i when i think about the u.s uh, 30, 40 years ago when my parents were here. And when they kind of look at the U.S. now, they think the U.S. has become literally extremely soft. Um, and we are now reading a lot of commentary which is coming out, which is kind of asking the government to get involved again in terms of driving innovation, especially across strategic sectors. Uh, again, a lot of popular focus is on uh, the chipset industry and things of that sort, supply chains and so on. But it doesn't end with that. It, it you know, goes into renewables and the environment in general and, and so many different aspects. So I, I do think with that renewed focus, especially in the U.S., uh, China continues to have that kind of government, whether you call it support, intervention. Uh, I think in a lot of these countries where it's market forces which have brought IP to the fore, I think they are also now going to see the value of that kind of government intervention. Now, you know, getting that intervention slash support right is a totally different topic. And maybe we, uh, we may be out of time for that one. Maybe we come back to that one later because that could be an hour's conversation in itself. Um, yep. but, uh, but regardless, I, I think 
step one is uh, the uh, is becoming sensitized to this, uh, which yeah. I do believe the global south has become sensitized to. And step two is to now see over the next five, 10, 20 years how they turn that sensitivity to their advantage. Hopefully, they all will turn it to their advantage. And eventually, uh, if this leads uh, to a global PTO regime where there can be a fair price exchange, um, you know, I think a lot of these disputes, which today we see at the WTO and so on, uh, you know, could potentially start going away. Uh, at a personal level, I've always viewed patents uh, kind of from a more, pardon my expression, a spiritual uh, context, saying that, uh, you know, being focused more on creativity vis-a-vis consumption uh, just helps you become more spiritual in that sense. And uh, so I think there are there are uh, parts of the global south, being of Indian origin, I can relate to India in particular, which is going to look at creativity in that light has always looked at creativity in that light, Uh, may not necessarily have viewed creativity in the construct of capturing it as a patent, protecting it, nurturing it, licensing it, and so on and so forth. But now you combine that that age-old view of creativity uh, vis-a-vis consumption, and you combine it with market forces uh, with the right set of government intervention, I think India becomes a huge force over the next decade, especially when it comes to the patent regime and how intellectual property gets defined, built, nurtured, eventually transacted around. So, uh, yes, I I do think over the next couple of decades, we are going to see a huge shift. Um, And the U.S. uh, has already started to kind of, you know, I guess, uh, uh, reinvent itself from a government support slash intervention standpoint, and that is that is going to play out in so many different ways over the next couple of decades. So I'm I'm excited about the next couple of decades, and frankly, at a at a personal level, that's why I kind of literally push everyone that I talk to to pay more attention to patents, to pay more attention to intellectual property, uh, because so far it may or may not have been critical to an idea and by extension a company's uh, survival. Uh, but I think moving forward, it will absolutely become critical. I, I A lot of wisdom in that. And I agree. It's a, you could, we could have a whole three other sessions just on that topic. Um, I'll, I'll touch on the, the chief IP officer topic. If, if we, if you think we still have a, a little bit of time, you know, yes, I think, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, it, this, this is one where, uh, you know, I, I see, Kind of two um, two competing um, trends, you know, which will probably play out. On the one hand, absolutely right. The the having C suite attention to intellectual property is the only way, you know, to align an IP program, you know, with the vision for a company. Um, otherwise, treating it, you know, sliding it under others, whether it's typically legal or, or the CFO, it ends up being treated as a risk management mechanism. It gets treated as a, a financial mechanism, or if placed in the hands of a business unit, which it sometimes is, or, or the budgets are all drawn from business units, um, you know, it ends up being subject to the boundaries of kind of short-term product market fit and results. Um, and you end up in all of those cases you know, with a narrow kind of point focused vision rather than a category level vision and massive opportunities missed. So um, people, you know, will, I think eventually figure that out. It's a long time coming. And um, 
I think a chief IP officer is, you know, a seat in the C-suite, you know, and, and our most successful projects have had CTO and CEO direct attention, you know, on IP from day one, all the way through to exit. Um, and it works incredibly well. Um, on the other hand, um, I don't know whether there will be a C-suite anymore. Um, it, it may, it may look really different. You know, the, the, you know, the, the, some of the more visionary people who look at the internet of things coupled with AI, you know, see a transformation of, um, organizations entirely, you know, I mean, you can kind of, even, even the C-suite is still a suite of different siloed functions. And, and if you, if you think about the intelligence that's embodied, you know, in the IOT, in smart products, communicating with the IOT, the uh, creation of digital twins, right. That allow you to have real time, you know, instantaneous views of what's happening on the supply side, the demand side, and to unify those things and to have AI that is trained and mentored by human experts to very rapidly decide things. Um, the, the entire organization, right, you know, which was created for a linear supply chain to, ta- you know, to tackle um, very efficient delivery of a defined product may shift into you know, something that is much more ecosystem driven um, and, and, and organizations that can figure that out and get a handle on it may have huge competitive advantage. Um, and those organizations might not be kind of traditional bounded companies, right? There may be more ecosystem level organizations. And so um, I think that'll take a long time, you know, so I think we'll probably see, see an era where companies look a lot like they do today, but with a, with a broader, more systems level focus on everything and IP, you know, being a key, you know, once you start to bring things out to the systems and interactive level, instead of just producing your own product, um, you know, your currency is IP. You can't, you, you know, speed to market no longer is an advantage if you're trying to coordinate with everybody else. And so IP will become incredibly important, you know, kind of in, in ecosystems and, uh, and a chief IP officer makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, but in the end, I, I'm not sure organizations are going to look the same, you know, in, the, you know, in uh, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years from now. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that plays out. And, uh, um, you know, credit you know people like uh, like uh, Michael Porter right for for advancing this kind of thinking and uh, um, and uh, I, I think it's intriguing and it'll be very interesting to see how it how it plays out. No, I, I agree, Charles. Well, uh, so if uh, if folks out there thought that it was difficult to get uh, get their leave sanctioned by a human CEO. Uh, good luck with uh, with uh, AI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, so on uh, on that very happy note, uh, we are a little bit over time. But uh, Charles, I personally actually learned a lot in spite of having known you for for at least twenty years now. And uh, I hope our audience also um, uh, you know uh, takes away from this all the things that I know you and I feel so strongly about. Uh, but once again, on behalf of all of us here at Tantra, thank you so much for for spending the time with us this afternoon uh, and uh, for everything that, that uh, you do. And for me personally, once again, thank you so much for your friendship. And uh, I cherish that immensely and, and look forward to so much, uh, so many more fun things to do with you.
Yeah, it's just a great pleasure as always. Thanks for letting me. I, 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 there's no question we're going to end up over time with my trying to uh, wind my way through to an answer to these complex questions. I appreciate your patience with that and uh, enjoyed it very very much as always. Thank you, Mel. And uh, uh, thank you uh, to all of you out there on behalf of Charles, myself, and all of us here at Tantra and Strong Force by extension. Um, uh, thank you for allowing us to, to come into your lives uh, for, uh, for a while. And uh, uh, we look forward to uh, working with all of you um, through the Tantra ecosystem. Uh, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, and we would love to engage with you and support you in, in whatever your endeavors are. Uh, as always, uh, we will follow up this podcast uh, with a white paper um, a little bit of a kind of a summation of the conversation uh, with Charles and uh, stay posted for our next podcast uh, as part of this uh, series. Uh, next time around, we will uh, go beyond patents and talk about products um, and people, the other two P's. Uh, once again, this is Mehul Desai and Charles Sella. Thank you so much for joining us today.